We're going to read a text. It's kind of a long text. 1 Peter chapter 1 and a couple of verses into chapter 2. And so before I read it, I thought we would maybe orient ourselves and open our hearts uh, with a little bit of silence to prepare to receive and to hear God's word. We say when we read a long text like this or read texts independent of each other or just in the service, we like to say after the reading, the word of the Lord by which we respond, thanks be to God. The reason the church has done this historically is, is not to just do something, but to express the fact that we believe by faith that these are not ordinary words. That on some level, they're not made up by human beings, even though they come through the human life as God impresses himself on the ones that wrote these texts. But that we believe this is from God. And so let's just for a moment sit up straight and sort of open our hearts. Maybe put your hands out a little and just get in a position of openness. And let's just have about 15 seconds of silence, breathe, and just sort of orient to prepare to hear the word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am 
holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Now, obviously, this is way too much text to exegete fully, and so we're going to just dive into two or three ideas that are presented here. The first one is found near the end of this reading. In verse 23, when Peter writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. He's talking about imperishable seed. Seed is this idea of potential. And he's saying that we just don't have a perishable potential. We have this kind of eternal, imperishable potential that has come to us. And he says it comes to us through the living and enduring Word of God. Now, when he says Word of God, don't automatically go to the Bible, even though the Bible is part of the Word of God. But God's Word speaks beyond a book that's written. It speaks out of God himself. Even creation, God is speaking through creation, words to humanity, words to the universe. The creation itself is a kind of book of God. Not only that, but God speaks through each other and circumstances and lives and relationships. The scripture actually says that we have become living letters. There were living words of God. So when we think, it certainly includes the Bible, but when Peter says the word of God, it's bigger than just what's written in a book. It's God and his voice in the world. And he says, uh, this living and enduring word of God, for then he quotes from the Old Testament, old men are like all men, old men. (laughs) Well, there you have it. I have crossed into a new dimension, the old man. (laughs) All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. So human potential begins to lose its potential. But... The word of the Lord, this imperishable seed, it never loses potential. It stands forever. And this is the word that he says that has been preached to you. See, there's this rich tradition uh, in in, uh, Jewish and Christian thought that says that God is a God 
who speaks. And he's speaking potential into the world. He's speaking life into the world. It's actually the place where good is expressed as he speaks. In Hebrews 11 and 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe, it wasn't there, the universe is actually formed by God's command. In other words, his very word had the potential of something that wasn't there. And the idea here that Paul, Peter is saying, he's saying, listen, you can actually be like born all over again. You can have a new kind of life, a potential that is beyond human potential. When you listen and open up your heart to God who speaks, who's speaking over you, and it's the stuff we're telling you, we're preaching to you, is God's word. Creation was the result of a good God speaking. Thomas Aquinas captures this in the Latin phrase, bonum sui diffusivum est. I'm sure you wanted to know that. The word, those, that phrase means goodness always tends to spread. In other words, goodness creates. And so Aquinas was simply saying, listen, we're talking about a God who is good and precisely because he's good personified is why we have anything created. Because of his goodness, he spreads goodness. Because he is goodness, he creates. That's the essence of creation. And the way that he pulls it off is with his speaking. With his voice, it carries the potential of bringing new and bringing change. And so his words spread his goodness. And those words themselves carry action. They are seeds that are full of potential. So in the beginning narrative of Genesis, all God does is when he's creating, he says, let there be light. Let there be, and he names things. And by virtue of the fact he names them, it says, and it was so. Which means that his words are not just empty. They're word actions. They're action words. There are words that actually carry the potential of transformation. This is the imperishable seed that Peter is calling to our attention here. So if, he's saying, you hear his voice, you will experience his goodness. And by experiencing his goodness, you will experience the potential of a life that's beyond what could have been humanly possible for you. This is the rationale being used in our text. But when he says hear the word, he's not talking about kind of a happenstance hearing. He's talking about an intentional hearing that focuses, that listens, that is open, and that is humble. It's, it's a way of listening. It's, it's interesting when you read the Gospels. That there's a couple of different times that heaven's open and there's words that come out of heaven. When Jesus is baptized, this is my son. Remember that those words came out. Another time, the heavens open and these words come out about God being pleased with the, with the son. And the scripture says that the people around, some people said, oh, there's a voice from heaven coming. They recognize that there's a voice coming. Other people in that same crowd said, oh, it just thundered. So some people heard the voice of heaven. Other persons heard it as thunder, as an aside, as inarticulate, not really meaning anything. How do you hear the word of the Lord? How do you respond to it? Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Whatever way you measure to the hearing, it will be measured back to you. If you're willing to focus and be intent and say, wait a minute, this isn't just the word of men. This isn't just, just thoughts that people have. This isn't just someone trying to control us from the past. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be 
to God and you will orient yourself to a potential that's beyond your human ability. Isaiah speaks of this. God speaks in this text in Isaiah 55 and says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without messing with it, without watering the earth and making it do stuff, bud and flourish so that it yields seed potential for the sower and bread reality for the eater. He says, that's the way my word works. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It doesn't come back to me empty. It messes with you. It it causes you to bud where you're not budding and flourish where you weren't flourishing. It'll cause you to have seed of potential when you thought there was no potential and bread to eat when you thought you were going empty and hungry. My word, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish some stuff. It'll accomplish what I desire. It will achieve purposes that you wouldn't have imagined they could be achieved, for which I've sent it. And you, as a result, will have a different life. You'll go out instead of with dread. You'll go out with joy, which is the expectation of good. And you'll be led forth with peace, which means things will be appropriate instead of garbled up and confusing. And, and the mountains and the hills, creation itself will burst into song before you. <laughs> and all the trees of the field, they'll clap their hands. Everything Peter is saying in this text has the presupposition in it that God is spreading his goodness into the lives of his faithful people because they're listening to his voice. And they're opening their heart to his word, longing to let God rain and snow into their lives and mess with their lives so that there's new potential. And so our reading ends with chapter 2, like newborn babies craves pure spiritual milk. Those of you that have had newborn babies, you know how they just are after the milk. Right? In fact, the whole world is like a big breast to them. Anything you put near them, they're rude at it, right? right? They just say, is there milk there? Is there milk there? See, <laughs> it's true. Just have one of those. Somehow with Peter, the image of that rooting child is that, that God would say to us, look for my voice in relationships, in your circumstances. Whatever's going, root for my voice. My, crave my voice. I am in your life trying to communicate potential to you that's beyond what you see, beyond what you can think or imagine. I've got things for you. And if we would dare to live like that, he says that we'll grow up into our salvation, which means some of us aren't. It means some of us are experiencing salvation, but we've never grown up into it. We never live the fullness of it because we're not rooting. That we would taste and see the Lord is good. See, we're craving, what we're craving is God's activity in us, his word acts in us. This is, means that faith is not just us working hard to love God, trying to, you know, psych ourselves up to commit to really love the Lord, right? That Christianity isn't this human thing. It's not just being ethical. It is, but it's not just being that. It's not just being just. It, Christianity is an encounter with the living God and his voice in our lives that gives us transformation. It's an encounter with the goodness from God that he spreads through his word. And we not only receive it, but then in kind we reflect it. 
We receive it, but then we reflect it back to God and to the people around us and to the world in which we live. We bring goodness back to it. If we go back to Aquinas, he captures this idea of receiving goodness and then reflecting it back in, in his schema that uh, is called, he uses two Latin words, exitus, E-X-I-T-U-S, which means the exiting of God's goodness into the world, causing creation. And then reditus is how creation, once it hits and is created and is filled with the potential of God, it's like the tide going out, it comes back out God. And we return back to God the goodness he has given us. Not only just to God, but to the rest of creation, other people and the creation itself. And that exitus from God and reditus back to God, it's like a, a reflex. You know when the doctor hits that part of your knee? You know, and you hit it, and all of a sudden, you know, you do that if you're healthy, you just have that reaction. That's what's happening. That when we encounter God's goodness, there's this reaction of goodness back. This is what Peter calls holiness. It's not just a human thing where we decide to be really upright and holy. But it's this response and reflex to a God who's so good. So it's not just human and it's not just God. It's us and God living together that the holy life emerges. And so Peter goes in verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. It's actually a word that means, the actual Greek says, gird up your loins. What he means is they used to have those like... um, skirt things, you know, in the ancient world that they wore instead of like pants and, and they would have a belt. So they would pull it up if they were going to run. They would pull it up and t- tuck it in their rope so they could move quickly. So he's saying, you know, gird up your loins or roll up your sleeves. In other words, get ready to do something here. He, he says, get ready for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope. Hope is such a great word. Your hope, which means things can be different. Set your hope not on yourself that today you're going to really become such a committed Christian life will change. No, set your hope on the grace that's to be given you when Christ is revealed. Now we know ultimately Peter's referring to Christ actually returning, but Christ is also revealed in the now. In our prayer time, in our openness to God, by hearing his word, we catch him in coming to the Eucharist. We find him. It's that great story in Luke 24 where the disciples, they don't recognize Jesus after the resurrection. And then when he gets to Emmaus, he sits down with them and he grabs the bread and he breaks it. And all of a sudden the scripture says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. The church has always believed that when we come to this moment to the table, that we see Jesus revealed in a way we didn't see him before. And so we're looking, he says, look for Christ to be revealed. Look for the grace that's to be given, the unmerited favor, this extra that helps you be what you cannot be by yourself. He says, this is what's Holiness is about, and as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in half of what you do. Right? (laughs) In all that you do, be holy, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is God speaking. What is this? This holiness It's kind of a gnarly topic, different thoughts about it, but basically holy just means to be different to be different, 
But the different we're called to be is like God is different. And the way God is different is he's good only. And he's creative only. He's not destructive. He's loving and he's oriented to the other. Certainly holiness and the call to holiness would have to include all that. Some think holiness is not nearly as proactive. I grew up in a context where it wasn't. It was always just not thinking bad thoughts or, or losing your temper or having too much fun. Uh, I was part of a group that used to think that, uh, uh, you know, you, that being holy was never smoking or chewing or hanging around with folks that do that. Do not smoke, do not chew, do not hang with folks that do. Right? Only listen to Christian music. That was holiness. And certainly don't have any friends who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their hearts. So no pagan buddies. Right? That was holiness. Now, whatever holiness is, and I don't think we can exactly say because each person comes from a different place and God may put restrictions in your heart in ways that are unique to you and your background. But whatever that works out to be, I think what's important here is that we have to be willing to examine if whether or not how we think about holiness in its essence is being faithful to the scriptures. Holiness is important for Peter in our text and in the rest of this book if you take time to read it because the whole book is talking about how to live in a way that actually changes the world. How to live in a way that actually influences the people you work with, influences the people you live with. That somehow you're living in a way that it, goodness is spreading. And you're creatively, this new life in Christ is spreading and it's affecting other people around you. Now, it's gooding, if I can use a word that isn't a word, it's gooding the world. Right? There's a, a kind of a romantic idea when we think about being different, you know, kind of unique, different, uh, kind of cool. But that doesn't go very far in our context because this particular kind of different isn't romantic or cool. In fact, it's hard to be this kind of different, this holy kind of different that, that the Bible talks about because it, it makes you kind of odd different, right? So for instance, it causes you to act kindly when it just seems so much more cool and much more appropriate to just slap somebody. But here you are being kind, you little nerdy kind person. It causes you to believe the best of other people when you're pretty sure they're at their worst. And people look at you believing the best of them, they just think you're naive. You're not cool. This is a kind of different that you're generous when not being so seems wiser. These kinds of, of difference can get you in trouble. This holiness that scripture talks about can get you in trouble. <laughs> There's a text in 1 John 3 that says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Well, that's a great idea, except sometimes it makes you vulnerable and look goofy and not cool. And so he brings up Cain and Abel and says, look what happened to Abel as a result of this uh, being sweet and nice and kind and naive enough to think your brother wouldn't kill you. He said, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Because his own actions, Cain's old actions, own actions were evil and his brother was right. He was righteous. So then what he says in the next one, he says, don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. I mean, sometimes when you're living rightly, you end up getting hated. Now, don't misunderstand me. Some of you may be being hated and you're thinking it's you're being a Christian when really it's just you're obnoxious. <laughs> I had this guy, Jim, uh, in Wisconsin where I pastored for 18 years, 17 years. 
And uh, he was really, you know, he was a pretty nice guy, kind of an odd guy, pretty nice guy. And I'm overhearing him talking. And he was always kind of loud-mouthed and always opinionated. And I'm hearing him talking, yeah, I'm just getting persecuted for Christ on my job. And I said, uh, Jim, hold on a second. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, before you came to Christ, you know, because he had recently come to Christ, like within five years or something. I said, before you came to Christ, were you like always getting in fights with people? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, like over politics and over different things. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I was, you know, so I'm pretty opinionated. I said, Jim, you, you, it's not that you're being persecuted for Christ. It's you are sort of obnoxious. And you usually get persecuted for being obnoxious. Now you just have a new cause. You're still just obnoxious. Now, so, so, and I hate to be bearer of bad news, but that's, for a lot of people, that's the truth. Most people that say I'm persecuted should be. We all kind of hate you. Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't want to go to hell. So we love you by faith. <laughs> but, but this friend of mine, his name is actually Tim, Tim and Jim, but this is Tim. And uh, Tim uh, really caught a hold when he was coming out of high school, this idea of working his job holy as a holy person which meant different. And working a job as a holy person means you don't go to the job so that you can be seen of people or even of your boss. You, don't, you go to the job because you feel it's a gift from God and then you work not for people, not to be seen, but to God. You don't even work for the paycheck. You're thankful for the paycheck. You don't get a paycheck and think, oh my gosh, this is so little. I got to reduce my level of energy in my work because I, I need to work as much as I'm being paid for and if they want me to work harder, they better pay me more. <laughs> Right? So good to be around some of these people. But he was working hard as unto the Lord. And so much so that people were getting mad because he was doing twice the work a lot of them were doing. They say, Well, you slow down. You're making us look bad. And he'd go, I'm not going to slow down. He ended up getting these promotions. But the point is, he was both hated and blessed. Right? Welcome to the Christian experience. It is a mixed up place. St. Augustine, his rubric of holiness, he presents the holy person as one who loves rightly. He loves God rightly as this, this upright kind of sense of loving God for who God is, loving people for who they are, loving things for what they are and enjoying them. But he says that in the fall of humankind, that that capacity to love rightly was twisted. That we became wicked. The word wicked comes from the word wicked, which if you think about wicker furniture, what kind of wood is that? It's twisted wood. And he says that somehow the human heart became wicked or wicked. The Latin word was incurvatus, which is such a great Halloween word. Incurvatus. <laughs> right? Isn't that great? Incurvatus. So, so the notion is, instead of being straight loving, I, I can no longer love people or love things for what they are. In this incurvatus state, I'm bent, and so my love is boomeranged. It isn't that I love things. I actually love myself. It's just how I love, I love how things make me feel. So if I go into a friendship, I, I don't love my friends. I say I love my friends, but I actually love how they make me feel. Right? So people come to church, how many times I hear this? I just don't have any friends. But if you dig into that comment, 
is they don't have friendships with the people they want to have friendships with in that space. They want to have friendships with cooler people, nice-looking people, leadership people. Because if they have friendship with those people, then they feel better about themselves. So they don't really love friends. They just love how they make them feel. There's all kinds of people around you you could be friends with, but you don't believe that they will make you feel any better about yourself. So I don't love them. I just don't feel connected. <laughs> or people get married and they get married and they think their spouse, you know, they love, they don't love their spouse. They say they do, but they really love how their spouse makes them feel about themselves. And if, if they stop making them feel wonderful and amazing and celebrated, well, they want out because it's a, boomerang love. It's not a true love. Or the consumer doesn't love things. We say we love things. I love things. No, you don't. You love how you feel when you buy them. You wicked person. (laughs) This is what Augustine would say, right? (laughs) And as the result of this loving wrongly, and this is what Augustine says is so amazing, I think. He says, you end up paling what's good. You end up corrupting what's good. You end up rusting what's good. You can have a wonderful marriage, a good marriage, but you will pale it. You will cause privation to it. You will rust it if you love it wrongly. It's this impetus of creation that brought the good into the world, that loves and celebrates the thing for what it is. But when you start loving wrongly, you actually corrupt creation, and it's anti-creation. You don't want to anti-creation your marriage or your friendships, or your career, or the culture at large. This is, for Augustine, the essence of evil. Evil is the privation, the corruption, the rusting of the good. So think about this. What if holiness is mostly choosing the good in your life? What if it's about not letting the good in your life be paled? Or corrupted. That would mean that holiness isn't so much about what you don't do as it is about what you do. See, my whole focus when I was growing up as a kid was not being bad. Don't think those thoughts. Don't be me. Don't, you know, just don't get angry. Just, it was always don't do this, don't do that. It was always this negative thing. It, it, like thinking, don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about the pink elephant. And all I have is this pink elephant in my head. But, but what if this is different? I mean, what if, what if holiness is not what you don't do, but it's entering life creatively? What if it's that bonum sui diffusivum est? It's that notion of spreading the good. It's that notion of loving rightly. What if that's what holiness is? Very proactive. That would mean that holiness holds the promise of a new life. What if this is the different that holiness is to be? in our lives, which begs this question for all of us. Are you living a holy life? Or are you boomerang loving? Is this all about you? And so Peter says, if you want to change the world, you don't want to influence somebody you work with so that if they come to Christ, it'll be easier on you. You love them for who they are. You just celebrate people for who they are. If they never changed, if they never voted the way you vote or think the way you think, you just love them. Changing the world by living holy. 
The last thing I want to point out from this reading today is in verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges every person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers. One translation says as exiles, which means your permanent address isn't in this world, that you're connected to another place. That place will eventually come here. Heaven at the end of Revelations says that the heavens and the earth join. So our address will eventually come here. But while we're here, it's like we're exiles. It's like we're, we're aliens. We don't really belong here, even though we are here. And he says, but you should live in reverent fear, fear of God. Fear of God isn't a negative thing. It just means that you're more aware of God than you are of anything else. We're mostly aware of people. You know, you meet a, 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 somebody who's a celebrity or something and you feel weird about yourself. Somebody that's huge and amazing and stick out money rich or whatever. You always feel a little less but, and, and because you're just in fear of them. Sometimes when we, I just did a wedding yesterday and um, <laughs> one of the, um, uh, you know, what happens when you do weddings a lot of times is the guys go, what do I do with these? Their hands. Because when they stand in front of a group, they tend to look at themselves through the people. That's why most people hate public speaking because they can't, they get so freaked out by what people are thinking about them, they lose their centeredness and they panic and they, they can't because they're so afraid of what people think. And so they'll go, what do I do? It's like their hands grow 50 times bigger. What do I do with these? I mean, because they're thinking everybody's looking at these. So what do I do with them? What do I do? What do I do with them? They're so in the way. <laughs> but, but what happens when you fear God is you're looking at yourself through his eyes. And when you look at yourself through his eyes, you begin to discover, if you understand him rightly, that he's always after your good, that he's always thinking of a potential that's beyond you, that your past doesn't matter, that there's a future for you that's bright and full of strength, and that he rejoices over you with love. And all of a sudden, it gives you this sense of lifting up your head, and it puts a sense of joy in your heart and an expectation of good in your life. You don't feel less when you get around this huge God. You feel more. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's he saying? When I encounter the hugeness of God, the amazingness of God, the popularity of God, the, the celebrity status of God, the amazing power of God, I don't feel less. In fact, after I encounter him, I walk out thinking, man, I can do all things through him because he strengthens me. And so he says, live your life here in reverent fear. Not the fear of man, but the fear of this God who will cause you to know you can do all things. For you, he says, know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life, that evil way of life, that rusty way of life, that life that didn't have much good handed down to you from your forefathers. But you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. What Peter is just really saying is that this new kind of life, this new kind of potential, this new kinds of experience, it wasn't the result of God purchasing it out of his strength, like a rich man pulls gold out of his pockets or silver out of his pockets to pay for something. God did not pay what brought this new life to us with his sovereignty. What he did was, he didn't, as God pay it, he became us to pay it. God put his skin in the game. And God suffered and bled as a man to purchase our salvation. It cost him not something, it cost him everything. 
So as we come to the table this morning, let's relive that. Let's remember. The word remember in, in modern parlance is, is kind of a pale word. It just kind of means vaguely to think about it. But in the ancient world, it meant to make it present as though it were happening now. And so let's come and let, be willing to let his living and active word that sustains us and prepares our lives to be holy. Let's sort of come before God and recognize as a result of these moments and this talk and this moment of Eucharist that we're being prepared to good the world, to change the world. So I want to invite our communion celebrants to come forward and the musicians. And for just a few moments, let's bow our heads and reflect on what we've said. Would you stand with me? We recognize that we have all sinned. We recognize that Christ in his action has done something greater than what our sins have done. And as a result, as we confess our sins, that the scripture says he's faithful and just to forgive us. And so let's pray this confession liturgy asking God to forgive us together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have sinned and strayed from your ways like wandering homeless persons. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have ignored your commands. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare us who dare to confess our faults and restore us as we turn to you. According to your promises declared in Christ Jesus our Lord, grant, O most merciful Father, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name, amen. Let me pray this over you. The almighty and merciful Lord grant you absolution and remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.